Welcome to the Smart Talk series, Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in November of 2020. Our talk is hosted by Ed Dodson, who is joined by our guest, Charles Marone. Mr. Marone received his bachelor's degree in civil engineering and his master's in urban and regional planning from the University of Minnesota. Charles leads an industrious career in city and urban planning. He is the founder and current president of Strong Towns, a nonprofit dedicated to making cities habitable and safe through collaborative local government. Charles analyzes public policy through an engineering lens, which leads him to find inefficiencies that work against the public's best interest. He is the author of Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, a world-class transportation system, and Strong Towns, all of which discuss how urban planning can improve living standards and better develop communities. Mr. Marone has a very unique idea of what he calls finished cities, which can be characterized as static adaptation. I urge you to pay attention to how this concept connects with the financial system and local government. We were lucky enough to join Mr. Marone in discussing his idea of how cities become more adaptable to the future, how our ideas around urban planning changed over time, and how public policy failed to prevent the deterioration of Detroit. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's odd to be doing this during quarantine and uh, uh, have the quarantine standard outfit on today instead of the suit and tie. So appreciate the uh, the invitation and the chance to share ideas. Well, your message is extremely important. I, I've read your book uh, and studied it in detail. In fact, I've made some comprehensive notes that that I will eventually ask Ibrahima to pass on to you uh, for whatever value they might be. But I'd, I'd enjoy that. But I, I've listened as well to uh, a couple of the lectures that you've given and the response to your audience. Now, as I understand your position, the planning community has really been almost 180 degrees incorrect in its emphasis on uh, finished development. Would you go into some discussion of that perspective for the listeners? Yes, on on finished development, uh, completed. Um, it's funny because as you said that, I'm uh, Scandinavian here in a Scandinavian part of the country, and I'm like finished development. I'm not sure. I'm really upset about finished development. But uh, <laughs> um, today, when we build, and I think the 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 lack of humility in the planning profession, uh, and and really in in economic building trades in general is that we build things all at once and we build them to a finished state, a completed form. And the idea of having things in a completed form in a finished state is that they are then done. Um, they're done. They don't anticipate any improvement, any change, any adaptation. Um, when we build things, we allow our building styles. You can think of like typifying this as a big box store or a fast food restaurant. Um, you know, or a single family home even. These are places that are designed not only through our codes and our regulations and, and, and all the, the, the financing and the way we process them, 
but they're designed by the very nature of the building to not adapt and become something different. It is very, very difficult to take that big box store and make a different use out of it than a big box store. It's very difficult to uh, take a, a you know, drive-through restaurant and make it something other than a drive-through restaurant. And the problem is if that a drive-through restaurant fails in that location, what are the odds that the next drive-through restaurant will be successful? It's, it's quite a bit less than you know, what you would have think. If you look back historically at human development patterns, if you look back at city building over time, what you see is that our ancestors, and I'll use ancestors in, in the largest possible sense of the word, our ancestors built things that were designed to adapt and evolve and change. They built cities incrementally on a continuum of improvement. And so there was a certain humility about the future, even though their pace of change was a lot, lot less than ours. Our pace of change is massive, yet we design things static. Their pace of change is very slow, yet they design things to be dynamic. The idea of allowing places to grow and evolve and change over time, I think is one of those humilities. Uh, we call it spooky wisdom in the book. Um, that, that I think our ancestors understood needed to be built into a place in order for it to survive and endure. What's interesting to me is you use the example, the historical example of Pompeii and how it was constructed in that way. And that seems to be continuous all the way through perhaps until the 1950s, that the same pattern of construction of our habitat uh, was pretty continuous up until the 1950s. Well, was it the planning community itself or was it uh, stimulus such as the, uh, the highway development uh, that under Eisenhower's administration? I, I suppose it was all those factors combined. Yeah, I think, you know, anytime you get something like this, that really is a, a, a broad very rapid cultural shift. It's got multiple vectors of causation. I mean, the fact that you had a generation that lived through the depression in World War II, um, the fact that you emerge from World War II as this strong, victorious nation, not really damaged physically by the war, uh, but really empowered by it. A nation that at that point in time, like literally had the gold. I mean, we were the, the strongest economy in the world the strongest industrial economy in the world. We had lots of cheap oil. And we had a, a, a population very attuned to hardship and to sacrifice and to working together on, on, you know, against common enemies. And so the idea that you would take zoning um, and, and the regulatory work of planners that had kind of originated in the city building movement and in the earlier 1900s and then just sat and percolated for about 15 to 20 years in city halls and you know institutions and organizations because there was no there was no mass building during during the great depression there was no mass building during world war 2 this all started after that so the the tools in a sense were honed and refined and became orthodoxy without really being tested to any degree and then after World War II, when all these factors came together, we just rolled out this strategy and said, hey, here's how we're going to rebuild a new America. Here's how we're going to create a prosperous economy. Here's how we're going to unleash the American dream and American greatness. And I, I think the thing that is profound about that is that for a short period of time, it actually worked. I mean, we actually did generate 
unprecedented levels of economic growth. We actually did create a huge middle class. They actually did experience levels of prosperity that haven't been experienced before. The, the cost of that and the trap of that became apparent over time and has become more and more apparent as time has gone on. But if, if you're just going to throw a, uh, a post-depression, post-war economic party, um, they did that really well. They did it, it very well. Um, and that, you know, that's really, I think, what you see. And planners were in service of that. I think they've taken too much credit for it because it really was not, I mean, they were just facilitators of it. And then I think have been too in awe of their own tools and power uh, subsequently to recognize, you know, how little effect they actually had on it. They were really just facilitators. That could be a criticism of all experts. That's true. <laughs> it's kind of, Nassim Taleb would call it the expert problem. Teaching birds to fly is what he says. You know, you, you look after the fact at what happened and then you explain it in your terms. And I think planners have definitely, you know, and I'm one of them. I think I've definitely been, uh, you know, guilty of that. But you've come a long way in your thinking from your initial training and your, and your, edu your formal education. I have the same experience you know, as a, as a young man coming out of college and, and studying economics, my god of economics was Milton Friedman. And sure. Free market. And the more I learned about the real world, and in particular, my study of Henry George's works, uh, which are, in my view, still extremely relevant, uh, the more I came to understand that there were systemic flaws that we hadn't addressed. And when you're talking about the end of the Second World War, a, one of the, the, the big demographic changes, of course, was new family formation. Right. And I, it immediately brought to mind reading your book, Levittown, that, that here's the model for everything that's going to happen in the next 25 or 30 years in the suburb, suburbs of the United States, the Levittown model, which was extremely practical. Uh, and it gave people, young people, what they wanted, a home of their own independent of their parents, in a sense, and also the freedom that, that the automobile provided. All that seemed to come together at that time as well. Right. You, you look, and when we think about like the, the American ethos, the rugged individualism, um, you know, the, the, the way we kind of glorify ourselves as a, as a, as a country, I, 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 the image of John Wayne comes to mind, you know, this idea of like the Western pioneer, the person uh, unto themselves able to conquer the world. Um, this is, you know, uh, and in some ways an American myth, but a, a myth is really something that is never really true in specific, but kind of always true in, in general. And I, I think we like to think of ourselves in this way and that development pattern, that way of, Kind of selling this next version of America uh, really fit in with the ethos of how we like to think about ourselves. The reality is that human beings are far more complex creatures. And I, I think this is a lot of the difference between Milton Freeman and Henry George, quite frankly, is that Henry George kind of started with human behavior and human sociology and, and an understanding of how humans react. Um, where Milton Friedman has, you know, started with the economic side of it. And here's how an economic system reacts and, and how should humans kind of change to adapt to that. When we look at post-war development patterns, the, the thing that made them magical 
uh, is that, and, and the reason why politicians even today refer to this period of time as like a, a golden nostalgic era, you know, the greatest generation came home and built this great economy um, is because it did fit very precisely with this, this mythos, this idea of who we wanted to be as a society. When you actually get down to how people live their lives, they happen to generally love their parents and want to take care of them. They like to live in communities and be social. They're attached to church and other organizations. Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone, is one that correlates with a lot of similar work that we've seen about the disillusion of the family, the disconnection of individuals from society, and the deleterious effects that that has had, both on human prosperity and happiness, but also on human flourishing. And so I, I think that when we reduce it down to, you know, as planners to, you know, a zoning code and, and have the belief, and I certainly was taught this belief and had it at an early point in my career that, you know, with the right zoning code, not only could we build great neighborhoods for people to live and be happy and prosperous, but we could stop, you know, create Middle East peace and cure cancer and do all kinds of wonderful things. If we just had the right zoning code, you become so full of your own tools and devices that you lose track of the bigger picture of what humans are actually doing and how they're actually guiding and directing life. Um, we almost get to the point in the playing profession where the humans are messing up our plans as if they're, you know, just the, the, the sideline thing and the plan is actually the end unto itself. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about um, Puerto Rico when you were discussing this, this uh, process where people built their house, started small as their family grew, added on a back uh, room or a second story. And even in my working experience during the 70s and 80s, uh, Puerto Rico was part of my territory, and many people in Puerto Rico built their homes that way. Right. That was a, I don't know if it's continuous. I mean, part of the problem, of course, was the guidelines that, that the GSEs, that Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA set up, where made that no longer acceptable. They wanted right. the house completed you know, and a certificate of occupancy issued. But, but given that, you know, as, as you travel around the country in many neighborhoods, in many communities, you do see changing land use and you do see people changing, uh, physically changing their properties. Going back to Levittown, for example, visit Levittown today, none of those homes look like they, were, like they did when they were built in 1952. Right. So we do, we do still have a good deal of that changing process, but I gather your analysis, it needs to be much more fluid. It needs well, to be much less regulated. Yes. I, I will say the interesting thing about Levittown, if you go there and look at it, the architecture of Levittown and the basic layout and design was not that far divorced from what you would have seen prior to that. So you, mm -hmm. you didn't have the architecture we have today, you, you go to a standard suburban, suburban subdivision today, the garage is out front, the house is in the back. It is very like a lots of varied roof lines and, and things that don't allow you really to easily add on and change and adapt. So as we've gotten further and further from that pre-depression pattern of development, everything about how we build the home has become more entrenched, less adaptable, less flexible. 
the interesting thing about Levittown is that while you have a pattern of development that is kind of locked in place, the, the actual architecture still, the, the people who were building that, their experience in building was with this flexible building form. So it's it was really a kind of evolutionary process. Even the ranch home is in a sense adaptable and flexible more so than the split entry or the the suburban, you know, kind of sheetrock palace we see today, uh, which is not adaptable at all without very Herculean efforts. It, it I, I think the, the Puerto Rico example is very interesting. I will say this, I, I grew up in central Minnesota where I still live today, rather poor part of the world. Um, and you know, for, for whatever, whatever good or bad, I grew up in a family that didn't have a lot of resources. When we built the house, we moved to the original Marone homestead, place homesteaded by my great, great grandparents. And we tore down the farmhouse and we built a new house. As part of doing that, we lived in our garage for a, a year and a half. Uh, when we built, my, yeah, my we went through a similar experience. I'll tell you a little bit about it. Yeah, well, when we built the house, um, the house was not finished. I mean, I, I, throughout my you know teenage years, we would finish this, finish that. When I moved in, I had no carpet in my room, no siding, you know, on no no finish on the walls. It was insulation with some plastic over it. And, you know, we, that, that was just what we did. I mean, we, we paid cash for the house and it was a farm. So farms tend to be cash rich one year, broke the next year. And so in years that did well, we would get carpet and we would get other things. And in years where it didn't go well, we wouldn't. Um, when my wife and I got married and we're going to build a house, my sense of how we built a house was we would buy the land. We paid cash for the land. Then we would you know, maybe borrow a little bit of money, but put in the basement and maybe, you know, cap that and maybe live in the basement while we worked on the first floor. And I, I had this idea from my upbringing of how we would do this. And when I walked into the bank, not only did they say, you can't do it that way, but they said, you're trying to borrow 40,000, 50,000. Why don't you borrow 200,000 and just finish the house? You qualify for it. You've got a job. Your wife has a job. And I'm like, well, I can't make the payments on that. And they're like, yeah, you can. You completely qualify for it. And so their whole thing was, you are not allowed to do a resilient building form. You're not allowed to incrementally assemble. You must build from a financing standpoint all at once to a finished state. And, uh, you know, we did wind up uh, going that route. I think ultimately we ended up with like a $140,000 mortgage. And it was really... Um, very, I remember the first few years of that being really, really tight. Like this, no vacations, no, you know, it was because we were just paying the man. I mean, we were paying this mortgage now on way more house than we ever needed, but it met all the, the FHA secondary market requirements. I think that's a story that's shared by millions of, of households over the last, you know, two generations or more. Yes. I mean, as I was saying, you know, my, my family were, were, uh, carpenters and home builders, small time home builders. They did remodeling, they'd build up one or two houses at a time, never a lot. So whenever the, the housing market was strong, our family lived pretty well, but there were long periods when it wasn't. Well, my father did what your parents did. And he went out and bought a piece of land in the suburbs of Pittsburgh. And he and his brothers started to build a house. 
um, and they were forced to leave where they had been living before the house was finished. So we moved into the basement while, while my parents finished the rest of the house. I imagine they did not have a certificate of occupancy. I don't know. Right. And I right. don't know what they did for the financing, if they, if they were able to get a bank loan or just finish it on their own. But, um, but that experience, I don't see that happening anywhere today. Um, and I guess it is because of the financial system. Right, right. It, it really, I think Hurricane Katrina really drove this home to me because I had my own experience and it was tough to analyze as a young man, you know, in the mid 1990s going through this. But when Hurricane Katrina happened in 2004 and you see houses, and this is a place that I was familiar with to a degree, houses that had been built over long periods of time that essentially represented the wealth as modest as it was of some very poor people wiped out. And now the federal government comes in and in a very like compassionate way on paper says, well, your house is a junky old house. It's worth about $60,000, $70,000. We'll give you 150,000 for it. So we're going to not, we're going to make you whole and then some. And you think like, well, that, right. That's really generous. That like, that really helps out. And then you turn around and look, and the person who owned the $80,000 home would now have to build a $300,000 home. And even if they were able to put all the money they got down, they were still going to have a big mortgage that they're going to have to pay. And so all of a sudden, that person's life was altered, not just the fact that their home was destroyed and rebuilt, but now their whole way of life was changed. It was no longer okay to live a New Orleans style of life and get up in the morning and uh, maybe do an odd job here or there, make some jazz music, cook some great food, enjoy a nice life. You had to be at the office at nine and home at five because you had a mortgage to pay. And as, as stark as that was, you know, the, my lifestyle, the Minnesota, like the Scandinavian lifestyle is very much a get up at nine, go to work at five. And like, we're fine with this. The idea of imposing that on New Orleans and watching that happen and watching people struggle with this was really eye-opening to me because it, in a sense, it was an imposition of a value structure on a community or a place that had a radically different value structure. And I think that they've suffered from that in, in, very, in very big ways. It reminds me of the, the writing you did about Detroit. And uh, a couple of years ago, I gave a presentation uh, at a conference in, in Detroit talking about the city's problems and doing some research on it. One of, the, one of the strange things that you see is one or two houses still standing on a block surrounded by total blight. And yet the people who live there will not move, even if, even if they're offered the... <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, the city, city leaders say, okay, why don't we pull all these people together and bring them together with the density that would give them a community. And yet many, particularly older people, have such a sentimental attachment to that house, even though their neighborhood's totally deteriorated. Yes. They, they refuse to move. They, they sit. You can see the people. Uh, uh, I ran into one woman who um, had flowers 
flower gardens, flower beds, shrubs. She had flowers on her porch, the, the little window uh, flower beds, mm-hmm. and she was tending to them. And her place, you know, was run down and was difficult, but it was loved. And you looked at it, you're like, this is clearly a place that is loved. And both sides of her boarded up houses in the immediate block collapsing, caving in, and just made me sad because you realize that this is someone oftentimes the way we talk about poor people and poor neighborhoods is that they don't have pride of place. They're not taking care of stuff. They're letting things get run down and you go to Detroit and you realize it's the exact opposite. You know, some of the, some of the people just almost to their detriment have a sentimental love for their own place and for, for caring for it deeply. And it's tragic. What has been, I, my, my narrative of Detroit is very much a, we destroyed this place from the top down. It wasn't like the character fault of people there. It wasn't, you know, like everyone, everyone left Detroit and it just fell apart. We, we like intentionally set out to impose a different order on the place and just gutted the fabric of those neighborhoods. And it's tragic to watch because you can have as much compassion as you want for the woman with the flower beds and the shrubs. And, and, and I do, um, but I don't see like an answer for that. Pro- I mean, I, 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 we have, we have done a lot of damage and created a lot of harm by trying to promulgate a pattern of development that begins with this theory of building place, as opposed to what actual human needs are on the ground. Well, we could have a long, dis- <clears throat> excuse me, a long discussion about the, the rise and fall of Detroit. I've done, I've done some study on that myself, and certainly by putting all their eggs into one economic basket, and that is the automobile mm. industry, uh, they, they, the, the city fathers and the people in Detroit put themselves at great risk that if that industry declined as it did, or automated as it did, that the jobs would disappear. The other, the other thing that's interesting is as, a, as someone who has uh, been schooled by Henry George is what happened to the Southfield, Michigan uh, town you know, and its history under, under the early mayor in the 60s, James Clarkson. And all he did, he didn't even follow Henry George's idea of increasing the tax rate on land. He just made sure that assessments were kept current. And as right. a result of that, Southfield started to attract investment, started to attract the businesses that were leaving Detroit. And despite the, the decline of the automobile industry, Southfield, at least as far as I know, is still today quite prosperous, high level of, of employment, et cetera. Two places close together and yet such different experiences just because of that one variable, and that is uh, how the tax system treated property owners. I don't right. know if you look at Southfield as a, as an, uh, in comparison to, to Detroit. Um, I don't know what the housing affordability situation is in Southfield uh, today, but we, it would be interesting to have a current study done on it. Right. Absolutely. I, I, I do, I do think that one of, and, and I, I don't, I'm, I'm not trying to uh, to to bash political philosophies as much as I am kind of trying to point out the need to have 
a, a balance. I, I see a lot of the argument in Detroit, even today being, um, we can't have uh, solid economics in places. We have to essentially treat Detroit like a ward of the state uh, because the people there are so poor and because there's so much destitution. Um, we can't, you know, have, have sound money and sound neighborhoods. And it's actually the exact opposite. Um, the more we treat these places in, in sound ways, the more we allow people to establish and start to get moving in the right direction. I'll give you one example that I've seen play out in Detroit a number of times, and it's it almost blows your mind how tragic it is. You will have people who live in a house, then they're renting it, and they pay their rent every month to a landlord, and the landlord collects that rent but doesn't pay the property tax. They have a ton of incentive to not pay the property tax, so they don't. And and even though they're collecting the money, um, they're paying. They're not paying their property tax. And after seven years, that then is foreclosed on. There's a tax foreclosure. The person who's renting will get kicked out of the house. The property will go up on the uh, the foreclosure rolls, and it will be put out to auction. The auction amount is the amount that of back taxes that are owed. And so what happens then is that the uh, the 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 guy who owned the property originally. Uh, will or will bid on it, and oftentimes will win the exact same property back, um, and we'll start the process all over again. The interesting thing about this is that if the county went to the individual property owner and sold it to them instead, said you're paying eight hundred dollars a month in rent, and if you took that and yeah, if you took that and put it towards the taxes and bought the property yourself, you would own this property outright in like two and a half years, three years. Like you could own this. That property owner doesn't qualify for a mortgage, couldn't get a mortgage on a property that low anyway. The bank wouldn't process it. The origination fees wouldn't even pay for it. It doesn't make any sense. But the county can't do that because the county has borrowed money against the back taxes that they're owed. And they can't finance it over for they need the cash today to continue their operations so all of a sudden you have this like bastardized financial system where that the landlords have completely figured out the property you know the the investment class has completely figured out and it holds the the actual people who are living in detroit hostage if we went in and said we're going to have sound economics here we're going to have actual programs where people without, you know, with resources can start with the resources they have and build off of that. You could start creating real wealth in Detroit's neighborhoods. Instead, we've said, we're going to be hostage to a large financial system. The county government that collects this is going to be hostage to the bond market and the, you know, the, the international uh, municipal bond market. Um, and so it's all kinds of factors driving the decisions being made as opposed to what is really happening on the ground and the resources that people there have. And we do this out of, if you go talk to the county, they will say, well, we have to do this because we need the money because we're providing services to the person in that house. We're providing them subsidize this and subsidize that. And I'm like, just stop being helpful. Just let them figure it out and actually build an economy here because they have the resources and the capacity to do it. 
It reminds me of uh, the large number of properties, residential properties since 2008 that have been converted through foreclosure to investment properties. And there are yeah. a number of companies that specialize in this and are, they own hundreds and hundreds of properties, uh, put almost nothing in them, of course. And, and often they're not, even, they're not even leasing them out. They're just hoping that the market will recover so they can flip it. And I would suspect that a majority of them are limited liability corporations. That is yes. the example that you gave, that person who uh, let that property go may have formed another LLC and purchased it through that new name. It's, it right. is quite a sham. It's quite a, quite a shell game that's being played in real estate, no doubt about it. Um, my experience. Over well, it's, it's fascinating too. You know, we have this uh, macroeconomic conversation about, well, you know, inflation is so low. We can borrow as much money as we want. We can print as much money as we want. We can spend what we want because we're having this deflationary period and, you know, fill that vacuum full of cash. And I, I always look and I'm like, what do you mean we don't have any inflation? You know, we, we gave billions of dollars to rich people. They bought stocks. And the stock market went up insane levels and we continue to give billions of dollars to banks and, and other, you know, kind of uh, people who are well positioned and they started to buy real estate and you can go to small towns around America and you will find housing that is unaffordable, that is ridiculously high in price. And when you dig into who owns it, it it's, it's real estate investment trusts, it's LLCs. Some of it maybe ends up on Airbnb if it's in like a tourist type area, but what it's not is it's not locals. It, it, the, 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 the property market has become non-responsive to individuals at the local level. And this has always been my problem with the housing affordability people. You know, you, you go to California as like a prime example and they'll say, well, housing is unaffordable. So we need to create rent control and we need to create this regulation and that regulation to drive down uh, or stabilize or freeze the, the price of housing. And you get things like Prop 13, this, this massive distortion in the market. You, you get other things that have really messed up the housing market and made it unaffordable for tons of people. The, the response should be, we need to actually create a market that equilibrates at the price people can afford. You know, like, like we need to create a market where the feedback of the market says, here's what I can afford. And so prices come down. And instead, we just layer on distortion after distortion after distortion. And you wind up with this market where the, the people who can least afford it are the ones who get shoved to the sideline. So I, I find it eternally frustrating. Particularly since the, the 2008 crash mm -hmm. and the actions by the Fed to keep interest rates really low. What that has done, not just for real estate and stocks, but almost any asset, is that, not to get too technical with our listeners, but market capitalization has resulted in asset price bubbles. And particularly for real estate, it's easy to understand. Um, I'll draw on Henry George's analysis. Every parcel of land has some potential rental value. And if you don't publicly collect that rental value to use to pay for public goods and services, and it's privatized, it'll be capitalized by market forces into a selling price for land. And uh, it just is built in inflation. And yet our national income statistics don't even calculate it that way. Don't even recognize it as no, right. the cost of living for people.
But right. the when we look to, I mean, systemic solutions are going to be difficult to come by. And I've been working on them, you know, for my entire career. But we, we end up with these Band-Aids. It seems to me that the, the best Band-Aids that we have available to us with regard to housing affordability, one would be inclusionary zoning. And I'd like your opinion on that. And the second is forming community land trusts, and in particular on a scattered site basis, as exists in some cities. And I've been a, at Fannie Mae, I was a strong uh, advocate of supporting community land trust activity. But those two methods seem to me the best band aids that we have. What you're talking about is a much more systemic kind of uh, change. And I hope that you and I live to see it happen. Well, we may be living through it right now. <laughs> you know, um, a, a lot of big changes come about by destruction. And, you know, I, I think you look at 2008 and to me, 2008 was the housing sector saying, these prices are insane. They need to come down. And you had a huge drop in prices and we didn't even get to what historically would be you know, par, or we didn't get to like what you would in a stock sense call fair value. We were still elevated at the bottom. Um, but then we just pushed that right back up and let's get it back up here again. Um, we're going to see right now, I believe, uh, as this coronavirus works its way through our, our population and then our economy, I think we're going to see that, that, you know, pressure to go down again. And we may get, we may ultimately end up with a, kind of reform and it might be a reform through you know inflation showing up in other sectors not in housing or it may be some type of structural reform i i i'm i'm not a inclusionary zoning does not excite me um and and i i think like the the land trust idea i get i get both of these ideas and i see the validity of them they excite me less um and and maybe it's because I'm uh, I'm naive or I'm uh, I'm too idealistic, but I always tell communities when I give them advice is you need to stop doing things that actually threaten your own financial health long term, right. and 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 so I feel like a community land trust and inclusionary zoning are both like proactive attempts to try to push and nudge a community into doing things that put them in a better position long-term. And what, what I like to point out with, with, you know, our do the math kind of work and say, here's a suburban subdivision. If you build this or accept this, or if this is what your zoning code calls for, every time you build one of these, you're getting a short-term cash boost in exchange for an enormous long-term liability. So you are becoming poorer stop doing things that have you become poorer. And I, I, it's, it's interesting because I think if we step back and we said, what are the odds of a community adopting inclusionary zoning or going all in on land trust? It's probably better in a good economic period than you know cities that are growing with suburban models adopting our thing and saying, you know, we're going to stop, we're going to stop doing that because we're actually becoming balance sheet poorer. Um, but in a time like now where we're, we're not seeing that, and I don't think we're going to see for the near future, um, you know, the, the idea of coming to grips with the insolvency of our development pattern, 
to me is really powerful because it allows cities to stop trying to trying to prop up a failed pattern, a pattern that's making them poorer and shift to something that's more productive. And, and that's what we're trying to help cities do is make land use, help land use patterns emerge that make your city stronger and more prosperous. Um, the inclusionary zoning stuff seems to me to be, I'll, I'll use the word reactionary, but I think you could also use the word pragmatic, right? It's, a, it's an attempt to deal with reality as it faces us today. Exactly, exactly. And, and one of the big problems in many communities is that there's no housing that's affordable for people that are asked to do the work in the restaurants and the hotels, uh, right. landscaping and all that. So we end up with people having to drive an hour or an hour and a half each way for a fairly low paying job. So again, right. I, I don't, I don't look at these as solutions, but simply ways to mitigate the problems that we have while we work on solutions. And for example, with, with regard to the land trust, the housing land trust, the big advantage of course, is that individuals are buying a house and not, not having to pay for land. And so you can, right. you know, if you're, if the land would be $100,000 and the house would be $100,000 and you only have to pay $100,000 and borrow to purchase a $100,000 house, um, then your debt load is much less. And at the same time, it does provide ground rent revenue for the land trust to maintain the infrastructure. And if it's done right. equitably, then some of the issues that you've raised with the larger communities won't affect the the land trust over time. I, I these are complex issues, and yeah, and, I have and a, I, I, a conference on them. Right. My gut, my gut is to always in individual cases like applaud it because I get like I get the human reaction, right. and I think it's a very smart approach for people to take. But as a as a citywide or a community wide or a, a, even a macro strategy. Um, my, my gut is always to worry about the future adaptation. You know, when you, when you put something in a trust, you are in a sense creating added obstacles and barriers to future change and adaptation. And, you know, to me, when I look at our system, the number one problem that, that I recognize that I see is that our system is built to a finished state. It's not allowed to adapt and to change. The land trust thing, as you describe it here, is, is a pragmatic way to deal with that system, that current system. Um, but it does it in a way that I think adds to the, the, the central problem over the long term. And I, you know, I I'm I, I'm 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 I have a deep amount of empathy for people who are caught in this, you know. But I look at like, I was in Vail, Colorado and in Vail, Colorado, a parking spot in their cover, in their garage goes for like $150,000. You know, you're, you're, no one is living in Vail working, who works there in one of the stores selling stuff. I mean, it just doesn't, it, the economics of it doesn't happen. So those people are bust in from distant places and and I just look at it and I say, you know what? The people in Vail should pay $20 for their coffee because that's how much it costs. And, and like I, 
you know, I don't know why we would subsidize highways and transit lines and, and, you know, the, the sewer infrastructure for the community 20 miles away and, and their housing and, and help, you know, subsidize the people that are there. All you're doing is allowing people to live marginal lives so that people in Vail can have $5 coffee instead of $20 coffee or not have to like solve that problem themselves. Like I, I don't, I get the like immediate pragmatic, like let's help people who are suffering. But a lot of times, you know, we create these like weird things where you trap poor people in this stasis where like a feedback mechanism would actually, I think, provide them more options and more dignity. The mathematics in your book suggests this never, never pays off for a community. Never, right. It always results in excess liabilities building up over time. And, you know, I, I try to... When I when I first got into this, you know, 15 years ago, it started doing 20 years ago, started doing this math. I tried to find like a a a an engineer way, you know, because I'm a civil engineer and, and a land use planner. I tried to find an engineer way to deal with this and explain it as like rational Spock-like human. And it was only when I started reading, you know, Daniel Kahneman and started reading um, you know, uh, Jonathan Haidt. And some of the people who deal with uh, behavioral economics that I started to recognize just the way humans and human behavior and human emotions and, and, and the, the, the limitations of our brain, including myself, how we deal with these things is really the driving force behind it, as opposed to just pure rational market incentive math. And so cities, yeah, take on these things because cities that are growing look richer they have more immediate resources. They're able to do more things. And that long-term liability that's sitting out there 20, 30 years from now is, it's not something we don't care about, but it's, it's so less immediate that we're able to collectively not think about it very hard and not focus on it. And that, the problem of a, that induces humans. It's to, a problem yeah. a future city council, a future mayor. And in the meantime, I have ribbon cutting ceremonies I've created jobs. I can say all the good things when I'm running for election next time. I well, and <clears throat> I I don't even know if we have to get that cynical because I mean I, I'm but I'm with you. Like I think that there's there is that on a large degree, but but if you just said you know human, this is why people smoke, right? Um, you know, this is why uh, I will sit in front of the TV and have a bowl of ice cream instead of going for a jog. You know, this ice cream tastes good. I like this show. The heart disease I'm going to have 30 years from now. I'm not going to get that. Like I, you know, I, it's not like top of mind at the moment. So, you know, I think humans are just flawed um, in this way. And, and clearly, you know, there's evolutionary reasons why we have this flaw. I mean, humans of the past were designed to act on the thing in front of them. And that paid off for us from an evolutionary standpoint. Now that we have the tools to utterly transform our world overnight, uh, to, to make these decisions that have long-term ramifications, um, we have to condition ourselves to think differently. And that's really hard. My opportunities to speak before the planning community have never been successful. <laughs> I wonder whether- It doesn't surprise me. It's, it's difficult. Yeah. Uh, the most effective talk I ever gave was was uh, um, 
back around 1999 at Fannie Mae, we had one of these corporate uh, program competitions. And our, our corporate development people were looking for the best ideas to pursue over the next X number of years. So this is when I wrote a paper on proposing that we support a scattered site community land trust program uh, will be funded by tax exempt bonds. It was chosen by our corporate development people as the number one program for development. And then our, our accounting and marketing people started to get a hold of it. And they said, well, Ed, this is a really great idea, but it's not going to generate enough business volume and transactions. Mm -hmm. And so when it started out as number one, it ended up on like number 15 on the list of their priorities. Right. And I still think it, it's one of those ideas that could be somewhat transformative. It's different from a community land trust that normally exists because it means that the property can be anywhere and doesn't have to remain in the trust forever. So the fluidity that you're talking about would be built into the design, but it could help people get into housing in any neighborhood they wanted to because they would have the land trust as a co-purchaser. So the properties right. wouldn't have to be contiguous. Well, that's, that's just one, that was the talk I gave um, to a group, I think it was in Cleveland, Ohio. And I just couldn't get through with them to them that this was something fairly simple. Uh, and I wonder if when you give, I've seen your lectures on, on YouTube, when you give your talk to that group, are you starting to see some break in the ice? Are you starting to see some response from the planning community that, hey, this guy may be onto something that we should perhaps begin to at least examine? If the, if the threshold is some, the answer is yes. <laughs> but, but let me contrast two groups. I, I go and I speak in front of, you know, 900 elected officials, mayors, city council members, that type of group. I will have standing room only. There will be people in, in, in the aisles. They, they want to talk about this. The feedback that I get is thank you for explaining. This has never made sense to me, but I can't get an answer for this. You've explained things so well and they're jazzed. They're excited. They want to go back and change the world and do things different. I talked to a group of planners and I'll have, you know, 400, 500 planners in a room at a conference. I will be going through my spiel, my talk. There'll be a couple points of levity. No one laughs. <laughs> you get to the end and no questions. Um, and you just are looking at these blank faces. And I, I know what's going on because I will talk to them afterwards. And what's going on is you've just told me that the, the world as I have constructed it and as I've like laid my own morality over top of it is actually something different. Like you've, you've just shown me the matrix. You've just twisted things around for me and I can't, I can't process it. And, and I, I don't know how to deal with it. And a lot of what we just get is like the, the most, the, the most generous response I get is Chuck, I think you're right, but I can't do it that way. You know? And, and, and this is the, the reaction I feel like you get too, when you're like, this is the number one thing coming out of this group. But by the time it works its way through all these other groups, it's 15. Right. It, that's because all every top down centralized profession. And if you go to a city, you have 
engineers who have their own, you know, international standards. You have planners, you have economic development people, you have the city administrators, you have the parks and rec people. You you have a whole set of bureaucracies that are tied to these national and in some cases international ways of thinking. And they all have their own priorities. They all have the own things they're trying to optimize. And so if you're trying to work your way through all those, the, 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 the one that we've seen the most like pushback on is the, the public safety ones. You know, you try to build a street that doesn't kill people by having people drive too fast down it. And if you, if you, the easiest way to do that is to just narrow up the street, create a little bit of edge friction. If you do that, the fire department people come out and they'll scream at you. And they have international standards that say, you know, you've got to have this much width and this much setback. Why? Because that's the way our fire trucks are sized. Well, I can go buy a different fire truck that's a different size. Nope, that's the way our fire trucks are sized. So every street in the city has to be overbuilt by 25, 30% and made more dangerous and less financially productive. We have created this, at the, what we try to advocate for at Strong Towns is to get this to be more bottom up. Because when you are a mayor, you can cut through some of these things and you can start to get people in a room who are actually working on this and align them and, 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 and have them reach some type of bureaucratic compromise and come out with something that actually will work in the moment. When you're trying to do this through the international agency for this and the national board of this, and the, no one has uh, the the incentives, if we just want to get to it, to actually change their structure and their culture to adapt to some secondary effect of what they're doing. And again, I, I will say we, we, could, we could look at that and say bureaucracies are bad and humans are bad, you know what, but that's just like a very human thing. I'm doing my thing. I'm doing it really well. I believe in what I'm doing. Why would I change that? because some engineer showed up or some, you know, guy from Fannie Mae showed up and told me I could make things 5% better if I did this. Like that just seems like a lot of work and it's risky. Yeah, it is. Well, <clears throat> in, in my own case, uh, it took one person at Fannie Mae with uh, what I would say a lot of intellectual courage to support what I was putting forward. And one of our SBPs uh, agreed to send me out to talk to different community groups about Henry George's idea of land value taxation. For about three years, I did that and uh, met with stakeholder groups around, around the Northeast and many cities um, to try to give them a sense of how important it was to address the problems of property taxation and the motivation of what brought people to do what they do, you know, how to get rid of land speculation, how to make it uh, feasible for lower income people to move into different neighborhoods by, by controlling the price of land. Right. Um, I was really amazed that, that Fannie Mae actually uh, got behind that idea. Once one senior person was convinced that this was good for affordable housing. Now, other organizations have similar leadership, but I haven't really seen it come, come forward with respect to the objectives that you've established. Right. Um, well, maybe you begin to have that experience, but, but someone, if, if someone at the Federal Reserve or someone at, at, uh, at Fannie or Freddie 
decided that what you're talking about is a best, a new best practice. That, that term is, you haven't used that in your book that I noticed. No, I it, didn't. One, it was our mantra. Everything that we did was looking at the best practices. If it was being done in Chattanooga successfully, that's a best practice that we should tout to everyone else. And in your book, you did make some reference to that sort of mimicking, you know, uh, strategic decisions, but that what works in one place is not going to work in another place necessarily. Right. So I, I, I think, I think the tendency is to then, um, you know, if it worked, th this is what we experienced in 2008 really is markets that we assumed were not correlated were hundred percent correlated because we assumed that what worked in Chattanooga would also work in California, would also work in Minnesota. And so instead of sharing those as ideas to be adopted or things to learn from, uh, we adopted them as best practices and said, here's what you do. Here, here's how we standardize this. And so the single family home is a best practice. Look at this is, you know, this worked really well in Detroit. Let's take it and put it in other places. And now we finance a single family home in a certain way. And so we have a glut of single family homes. Um, you know, you, you, I, I, I feel like the role of if it's GSEs or it's, you know, federal organizations or, or national organizations, th th there's a very fine line to walk between being facilitators of good practice across jurisdictions and being imposers of a standard that becomes inflexible and, and calcified over time. And that's a, that's a fine line to walk. And I don't know as anyone will ever do it perfectly, but I, I think sometimes we're not even aware of that. You know, we're not even aware that we have that impact. Well, perhaps, are you familiar with Ellen Brown's work? Sure. It seems to me that one of the parts of the plan for achieving what you're trying to achieve has to do with the establishment of public banks. Yeah. Really, <clears throat> without the nonprofit public bank entity, the rest of the financial community is not going to change its ways. But, but at least public banks could be flexible enough to allow people to do some of what you're talking about. It, it's interesting because I was, you know, having a chat with someone the other day and going through, you know, what would a, what would a banking system look like? And, you know, that, that, that was a strong towns type system. And it, we were like, well, it would be like, uh, you know, this person saves their money in the bank and then it goes out to help this person build their house. And, and at the end of it, we had just come up with a savings and loan, you know, <laughs> like, well, we, we had these, like we, you know, we, we, at one point did this, um, we just took them then and like redirected them to try to generate lots of growth in the economy. And then it went all haywire. Um, you know, the, the whole like George Bailey nostalgized, it's a wonderful life. You know, your savings is in their house and your savings is in, you know, their investment. And there's, there's something very like genuine and organic about that. Um, it won't maximize growth, no. uh, but it will create a lot more stability. And I think provide a lot more options to people. And if, if we, if we shifted our mindset from one of how do we generate as much growth as we can to how do we create 
stability and prosperity for people, we would, we would have a very different approach, a very different approach. Well, it takes us back to a couple of generations ago of immigrants. I mean, when immigrants were non-bankable, they created their own savings funds. Uh, uh, I think the, the Korean or Chinese fund was called the Susu Fund. Yep. And the Jewish fund was called the Gamak, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. But those are people who took this whole issue in their own hands, and they did exactly what you did. They created communities from the ground up. Uh, a little bit at a time and shared their resources effectively. And, right. and certainly to, to follow through with Ellen's arguments in a sense that cash stays in the community instead of going to a corporation or a you know, major financial center bank somewhere else. Cash circulates in the community and it makes it a lot more possible for people with lesser means to build themselves up from the, from the ground up. Right. What, what we actually see here in Minnesota, um, the Somali community, we have large Somali communities in many places, and they are for, uh, to a large extent, unbanked. And we see that same exact thing. Very, very high savings rates, a lot of cooperative action at the local level, and a lot of, you know, very much a cash economy with a little bit of internal lending between them. And the reality is, is they've you know, you, you've seen the wealth and prosperity of that community grow successively uh, over the decades in ways that, yeah, I think if they were more entrenched in the American system would not have happened. Certainly would not have happened within a cultural framework. Well, um, what, I guess what intrigues me is scale. Mm -hmm. To what extent can we put the genie back in the bottle and how long could it possibly take? Millions of people live in large metropolitan areas and sprawling development continues to occur on, on an ongoing basis. Despite all the discussion we have against sprawl, it, it's, it seems to be continuing almost everywhere. I don't expect you to come up with a solution, but yeah, but what would well, your advice be to uh, the leaders of middle-sized cities that are starting to experience the same outward movement of population um, and that they might be concerned about their downtowns, their central core being threatened by this loss of population to, a, to an exurb or edge city? So a lot of what... I, I, and, and this is a little bit dark, but a lot of what we at, at Strong Towns have kind of recognized is that um, it's really hard to get people to change in this system. We also think that a lot of this suburban development, a, a lot of the what we look at as the problem is going to collapse under its own weight. And so we are, and, and the analogy that I've been struggling with lately is like, I don't want to be the general who wants war, you know, like I don't want to be because, you know, you get the general who's like practices for war all the time. And then at the end of the day, they want a war. And, and I'm like, I'm, I'm, pre I'm in a sense, prepping people for this system to collapse. Um, that puts me in an uncomfortable position of when you go through huge economic turmoil going, yes, like I'm, I'm, this is now happening. Here's how we react to it. 
I, I think that we will continue to try to build this style of building until we cannot do it anymore. And whether we cannot do it anymore because there won't be any demand for it, um, because people are just broke, um, whether it will be because we've so messed up the energy markets where fuel is just ridiculously expensive and people aren't driving that much and we, we just can't afford like the burn of that lifestyle, um, or whether it's our local governments going broke and we just can't prop them up anymore. At some point, we will stop building this. And I think the question then becomes, how do we pick up the pieces? In the 1950s and 60s, we walked away from urban neighborhoods. We just got up. I mean, people just got up and left. I mean, they, they sold their homes for nickels and dimes at what they thought they were valued you know, in times past because they were not very good investments and we were enticing them into other investments out on the edge of town. Um, for us, it seems unfathomable that we would walk away from Walmarts and Target and um, strip malls and McDonald's and gas stations and suburban subdivisions. Yet when you look at the construction of those, you look at the actual materials, these are places that are not designed to endure. They're, they're, they, if you stop maintaining them, they'll fall apart in a decade, like literally just implode. You'll have trees growing up in them. It will be a disaster. Um, these places fall apart very, very quickly. The idea that we would walk away from them seems unfathomable to people, but I think will become just very self-evident in, in, in a not too distant future. And so the, the question really becomes one for, in my mind, less of how do we stop this? Because I feel like it's headed for the wall, like it's going to stop on its own. But how do we position our systems, our culture, our society to salvage what we can out of this and make the best out of it without going crazy, you know, without doing things that are self-harmful. And I, that's why a lot of my writing and a lot of my, uh, my reading and, and my intellectual time has shifted from the physical nature of maintaining infrastructure and the economics of it and the on the ground to the cultural part of how do we work together on a difficult project at the, at the local level? How do we, you know, tamp down our kind of worst tribal natures at, at, the, at the macro level so that we can actually work together in a community to figure something out? Um, you know, can I work with my neighbor even though they watch a different cable news network than I do? I should be able to. How do we help people actually be able to do that and do that productively? Those to me are the urgent things of our time because I, I feel like the other part is going to solve itself in a sense. You know, what can't continue won't continue. And once you recognize that, it becomes really scary and then it becomes really liberating. Well, we do have ghost towns all around the, the continent, you know, where people, and Detroit is in a sense, one of them. Yeah. So the infrastructure costs are going to decline as those neighborhoods revert back to well, right now, I guess the highest, best interim use is agriculture. Right. I mean, many cities are experiencing that. Uh, urban gardens and, and urban farms are being created where neighborhoods once stood. Which should blow people's minds, you know, because it, it, it's funny because a, a lot of people think, oh, you know, this is really cute, like an urban garden. How, how nice, how green, how sustainable. And you go out there and you point to them like you realize you have 
like $400,000 of public infrastructure for, for, uh, for land that is now worth like a thousand dollars an acre. It's at agricultural prices. Like those things don't, those things don't add up. Like that doesn't work. You know, I grew up on a farm. You know what the public infrastructure was to the farm? Two tire tracks out in front of the house that got you to the county road a mile and a half away. That was it. You know, it snowed and we didn't get plowed out for two or three days. Um, the, the farms are low value uh, per acre types of enterprises and you can't have public infrastructure on them. So I, I think some of these things will become self-evident to people, but it's going to take time to work it out. And, you know, I, I think the more of this we localize and the more our big bureaucracies and systems shift to facilitators of ideas exchange as opposed to imposition of, you know, order, uh, I think the better off we will be. I think you're absolutely right. And I, you know, I'm, I'm a strong believer that we need to make incremental changes. And, and certainly one of my focuses and, and activity has been on tax reform and what we really need to do with regard to tax reform. Um, I would, if you haven't read already, I would strongly recommend that you take a look at what Mason Gaffney has written. Mason is now in his 90s. He's a professor emeritus from the University of California, but his writing on these issues is really, I think, critical for, for, for people like you and me to understand. Um, but, but I I think we need to move to a system of tax of raising public revenue that gives everyone the incentive to do the right things. And to me, that Henry George was was right on target when he came to that conclusion. If if we simply increase the cost of holding land, people will hold less land. They'll bring it to better use and the cost of housing and the cost of doing business will all come down over time. But it's almost impossible to get people to be willing to make a change, even if it's for their long-term benefit, if it hurts them in their pocketbook in the short term. So, well, the, to me, the other challenge that the Henry George School has at the local level is not only overcoming the fear of change, but the fact that what you're really talking about is a whole bunch of people saving a nickel and a dime and a handful of influential people having their taxes go up a dollar or two. So, you know, the, the, there's, there's this disproportionate problem where the benefits are really apparent and they're widespread and they're broadly shared by society but each individual has a little bit of added benefit that adds up to a lot. The people who are the land speculators, the people who are in a sense like position themselves to, to benefit from the system, they will disproportionately be affected in the negative by this. And so if, if you have a meeting, this is any type of public improvement is this way. If you have a local meeting and say, we're interested in doing this, who will show up are the you know dozen people negatively impacted, not the thousands of people okay. who would be positively impacted because the positive impact is substantial, but it's less on an individual basis than the harm to the one person who's really sucking the community dry in a lot of ways. I think if, if leaders recognize that they can overcome that, but you have to, you know, to me, that's the, uh, 
that's the communication thing that we need to get out is, is, is that disparity. There's another critical factor and that is that the overwhelming majority of net worth held by households in the United States comes from equity in their residential property. Right. Most of that equity comes from land value. Um, this is, this is a really difficult conceptual issue for a lot of people to, to grasp and say, well, you, you want to tax my land and take my equity away from me. Right. But on the other hand, where are your children? Where are your adult children living? In my own, I live in Southern New Jersey. In my neighborhood, um, I live on a cul-de-sac and uh, most of my neighbors are pretty well-to-do. None of their adult children, almost all of whom are college educated, can afford to live anywhere close to where we live. Right. And so, you know, it, it's, in, in that sense, it's taken away from the whole type of community involvement that you have emphasized is essential to the health of a community. Right. And right. not everyone understands what this is, what this is all about. Even uh, one other example I'll pose, and then I'll give you the last couple minutes to talk with us. Looking at the statistics on student loan debt, it is unbelievable the extent to which that debt is held by grandparents. Right their right. children and grandchildren right uh, and and they're they're taking out reverse mortgages in order to to get cash to make their pay their bills um these are these are hidden problems in our society that are not talked about in the media and not well understood and well known but as the same thing with the liabilities on infrastructure that the cities are have undertaken they're all going to come home to roost it, it feels like we have adopted an economic theory that has just systematically created these widespread fragilities. The student loan one, we look at and, and, and our politics, and this is not a political party thing. This is a broad observation. Our politics tends to deal with that as like a discrete problem, you know, the student loan problem, as opposed to the, the, the entire college funding problem, as opposed to the upward mobility problem, as opposed to, you know, uh, intergenerational wealth problem. I mean, it, these things are all part of this system. And what we see is a lot of these symptoms cropping up. Why is housing so unaffordable? Why is housing unaffordable in Akron, a deeply poor community, and San Francisco, a very affluent community? H how can that be? Why is it unaffordable in Detroit? of all places where there should be abundant housing at very cheap prices, yet it's still unaffordable for people. You, you, you look and recognize that there's something fundamental at like the, the, the economic DNA of this system that just is not producing good outcomes for people. And you, you kind of, I kind of, I kind of feel a little bit like a conspiracy nut when you start to listen to the, you know, oh, it's the fractional reserve banking and it's the federal reserve and it's, but there is no doubt in my mind that what we have gotten away from is any type of mooring in community, in, in, in the way people actually live their lives and our systems, whether it is, 
the Federal Reserve and the way we manage our currency, uh, whether it is you know the way we manage interest rates or 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 market properties, these have become very disconnected abstractions to what it means to actually be a human and live a human life. And I, I, my you know my fear right now, but also I think that you know general kind of sense of of awe and opportunity is that you know this system resolves itself by by resetting by having something fail to work and then creating a new people get freaked out over the idea of you know currency collapse or economic collapse or but i i i've even pointed out to people that if you went to what i think the low point is of humanity over the last um, you know, 100 years uh, in terms of Western civilization. You could go to Berlin in 1945 and there is no, you know, there is no more complete collapse of a society than Berlin in 1945. Yet if you went to Berlin in 1950, here's a place where people had food, had jobs, had economy, had currency being exchanged, had, you know, the things of normalcy that we would look at as human existence. I think it's the change that freaks us out. And for good reasons, we built up a lot of fragility and it's painful to work that out. Um, I think our emphasis right now should be on how we get through this in a way that is the, has the most amount of empathy and compassion for those around us. But I, I think a lot of this is unavoidable. And I, I do think that when we get through the other side, what we need to recognize is that the systems of feedback that Henry George and others have long, you know, have, have, have promoted and have long been known are essential to making sure that these systems don't remain abstractions, but actually serve us as human beings. I think that's what's been lost. And I think that's what we all feel has been lost. Does this mean we're better at recovery than prevention? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I think that that's undoubtedly true. Um, and, you know, I, maybe that says something about us as, as species, but we are, um, I mean, this is the, the Roman Republic example. Uh, you know, we have this myth and I think it's grounded in some reality is that when you get fat and lazy and, and, and things are too easy, that's when uh, humans tend to fall apart. And when we do have a little bit of stress and tension, that's when we tend to be our better angels. And I don't know, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, living amongst our better angels again. Charles, you've given us and this, the listeners to this program a lot to think about. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I look forward to maybe an update, let's say six months or a little bit longer from now to see what sort of feedback and, and response you're getting from your message. But I do encourage everyone who's listening today to get hold of your book. Uh, read it, study it. I, I have uh, actually prepared a fairly extensive analysis of the book that uh, we'll be sharing with you for whatever value it has. But I'd, I'd love to have a chance to have your comments to some of my uh, own experience and reaction. So thank you so much. This has been a wonderful discussion. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. And yeah, it's been very good. I, I look forward to those comments. It's always interesting to get thoughtful feedback. So please pass those along. Take care of yourself and, and good luck with everything. You too. Take care. Bye -bye. We'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. Okay. That's it for this edition of Smart Talk. For more information on this and other episodes, 
please visit our website, henrygeorgeschool.org. I'm Edward Dodson, and thank you for watching Smart Talk. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.